Hello and welcome to another edition of The Rest is Entertainment, Questions Edition. Uh, Questions and Answers Edition, I'm Richard Osman. And I'm Marina Hyde. Now, let's have no preamble because I'm dying to hear the answer to this question, Richard, please. It is about jury service. Okay. Robert Buckley says, having been called again annoyingly for jury service, I was wondering if celebs are exempt, as I can't imagine David Beckham or Lorraine Kelly sitting in jury deciding the guilt of a shoplifting case. How famous is too famous to serve? That's such a good question. Do you know what? I, I literally, I've asked a high court judge that exact question. Can a celebrity defer themselves? That is service journalism, can I just yeah, say? Yeah, isn't it just? Now, she says that, listen, if you are like anybody, if you're filming a movie or something while this is on and you can prove you are contractually, then you can get out of jury duty. You can defer a couple of times. But she says, no, there is absolutely nothing stopping a celebrity being on a jury. So I went further and said, so for example, no one would go, it might be a bit weird if Lorraine Kelly is on this jury. And my friend said, uh, no, unless it's connected to the case somehow, weirdness for everybody is not a ground for dismissal. Yeah, I mean, if you ever yeah. looked at juries, yeah. there's much weirdness there. And it, yeah. it does, you know, Lorraine Kelly would be the least of it, I have to say. Yeah, she then goes on to say, I would make a celebrity sit just for badness, especially if it were you. So <laughs> I won't be able to get out of it. Isn't that interesting? So you, you could go there and, you know, there could be Richard Maidley, it could be anyone. That, I would love that. I mean, I, I mean not if, perhaps if I was on trial. <laughs> <laughs> Maidley can have some quite lively views and yeah. I'm not necessarily sure I'd want those you brought to bear on my case because I would only be on trial for something I was falsely accused of. If um, I was on trial and Richard Maidley was on the jury, I think every single thing I'm saying, I'm, dire- I'm directing directly to Richard oh, Maidley. Oh, yeah, because you know he's the foreman. He yeah, will get himself yeah, elected exactly. to that foreman, no question. You know, And I'd be going, well, the, the mobile phone cell, I know it said I'm there, but hey, Richard, you know sometimes technology, right? Okay, it can be wrong. And then I say, and of course... I have forgotten what I was doing on that Tuesday. We can't always remember what we're doing. Am I right, Richard? Just the whole way through. The well, this whole is, way that's quite a sledgehammer way to incept him into thinking that, you know, you haven't actually done it. You'd try and do it that way, but some other thing completely would get inside his head. Something, you know, prosecution or the defence Or he would say, do you know what? When you walked up, I saw that one of your um, shoes, your left shoe, the, the shoelace was slightly uh, looser than the other. And I thought, that means you're right-handed. So I think you did it. I go... There's nothing about being right-handed in the trial. What are you sorry, talking sorry, about, Richard? Sorry, he goes, listen, listen, yeah. I'm, uh, I've listened to everything. Okay, I think what I think. I think Maidley, you've absolutely turned this on its head. It's perfectly possible, by the way, that Richard Maidley has been on juries. If he has been on juries and you have been involved in any way in a case <laughs> please let's and say. Maidley was on the jury, please write in because I want to know. I want to make a 10-part series about it, actually. If I went into court, if I'm standing in the dock and Lorraine Kelly is on the jury, front and centre... If I'm guilty, I know I'm done. And if I'm innocent, I know I'm saved. Yeah, she'll get to the bottom of it, yes, in a way that perhaps I don't quite think Maidley would. So, yes, as I say. But also, if Lorraine Kelly's been on your jury, do write in and yes, let us know. exactly. But Any yeah, celebrity but... juries, actually, we'll take anything at this point. Who's the most famous celebrity who's been on a jury? That would be the question. Uh, she gives me the name of somebody who, who got off uh, a jury because he was filming a, a, a movie. I can't. I won't say the name in case that's subjudice or something. Yeah, Yeah. that's a great, that's a nice place to start, one. isn't it? Thank you, yeah. But you can, if you commit a crime, then Lorraine Kelly may well be judging you. And you better hope she is if you haven't done it. Uh, okay, talking of going on trial and being uh, being judged by uh, Lorraine Kelly, Richard Allen has a question. Uh, Marina, as a columnist, do you get legal indemnity from your employer against the cost of being sued for something you write? 
you do. And so you should. If you publish something in a newspaper, it has to go through a number of procedures. I mean, everything I write goes to the legal department. I'm You're so square. I have become I, I've become great friends with the legal department over the years. We have so much, so much special time together, um, as you can imagine. And it should go through your editors, it should go through the legal department, and therefore if it is published by your newspaper or your media outlet of any sort, they should obviously indemnify you. And so if, if you are sued, which by the way, legal actions in this country for libel are sort of extraordinary. Our libel law is really pretty awful and it costs on average, I think, 140 times more to fight a libel action in this country than it does anywhere else in Europe. And it almost doesn't exist in the US because they have that sort of freedom of speech rights and it's really quite hard to be considered to have libeled someone in the US. What's happened in recent years is that particularly amongst sort of oligarchs, kind of really extreme um, kind of kleptocrat business in- interests. Richard London, For which London has become a complete magnet for. Some of those have taken to suing individual journalists. They've sued the publisher of a book, for instance. There's a, there's a great journalist who's actually got a new book coming out, which I'll tell you about in a, just a second. A guy called Tom Burgess, who used to work for the FT. And he wrote a book called Kleptopia. And oh, he I love w- that book. Oh, it's terrific. Yeah. He's got a new one coming. I'm going to tell you this. He's got a new one coming out literally next week called Cuckoo Land, which is in the same vein and it's absolutely fascinating on dirty money and how it gets hidden and it's really brilliant. Also, Catherine Belton, who was the Moscow correspondent also of the FT, and she wrote Putin's People, which is an extraordinary account of how he rises from being a sort of FSB security KGB officer to becoming Putin. And a much, sev- a much, a much less good version of Pan's People. Yeah, a much less good. And uh, and both of them were sued. Harper Collins was sued, but they were sued individually by various oligarchs, and it is, that is really very difficult. And both of those them won those libel actions, which is really very difficult. Or the, legal actions. The journalist won the them. The journalist yeah. won them, which is very, very difficult. There's a second part of Richard's question I have seen, which is, if so, does the legal sort of indemnity cover your column only or extend to Twitter? (laughs) Well, this is a much more interesting area. There are social media guidelines, all newspapers, um, publishers, whatever, will have them for their journalists or authors and will say, you know, you need to stay within these guidelines. Because if you write something on Twitter that is libelous, there's not necessarily a reason, in my view, given how expensive libel actions are to defend, that your employer should automatically stick by you. And sometimes people have been told many times not to say certain things on Twitter because they haven't gone through all those layers mm. that we talked about, the editing, particularly the legal department. And you're kind of out there on your own. As I think we've said before on this podcast, it's fine not to tweet. It's yes. absolutely fine not to post. Yeah. Have the thought, but don't necessarily feel the tell need to on the tell your friends. But in those cases, it is more complicated. And there are some instances where journalists have been sued over things that they said on Twitter, but not over what was published in newspapers at the time. And I have to say that I think it's pretty difficult. You should probably take responsibility for within reason for yeah. what you write on Twitter. If it's just about kind of maybe promoting a column that you've written or you're promoting an investigation that you've done and you get one word wrong, I think reasonably you might hope that your newspaper would defend you in that situation. But in other times, if you're going out on a limb and freelancing completely and really not staying within libel law to a reasonable degree, then I think you have to be quite careful. By the way, I do think that certain things, as I say, I wish it was different um, and I wish libel wasn't such a you know, we're the sort of libel capital of the world. And another great book, sorry, I'm giving you a real reading list on this one, a book by a journalist called Oliver Buller, which is called Butler to the World, which details all the kind of image washing, 
all the legal, they call it lawfare, this type of suing so that you kind of completely silence writers who are writing often quite legitimately about your business interests or your kind of political misdeeds. And London's the sort of capital of it. And we have these whole strata of people who work in London who probably tell their mothers that they're a hotshot liar. And you think, yeah, yeah, but it's like being like a lawyer for the mafia. I mean, you should work in something like animal torture or something. It's probably more moral. So with the the ones you, sorry, we'll go on slightly longer on this one because I think it's fascinating and it's a fascinating insight into it as well, into a world I don't really know. So the HarperCollins, for example, and these authors, when they fought back, that's quite a brave thing to do. It's quite an expensive really thing hot. to do. Yeah, it's, it's, ex- it's so expensive to defend a libel action. It's, uh, you know, do, automatically... Do, 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 do a lot of people just cave and... <clears throat> yes, because sometimes it's a small thing and you just think... Oh, you know, I'm going to be fine. And what they um, call these things, you know, the law, that's why it's called lawfare, because it's really easy. You hit people with sort of 25 different lawsuits over different bits of the manuscript of the book. And in the end, you want to get this thing out there. And so it's very, very difficult for publishers who, you know, aren't hugely rich in many, many cases. And they have to decide whether they're going to take a stand on it. And both these publishers, the publishers of um, um, Catherine Belton's book and of Tom Burgess's book decided to do that. And that is totally to their credit. But you can see, certainly with smaller publishers, you just don't have the money to do this. And actually, n- newspapers often don't have the money to do this. And sometimes people might accept, rather than a really long, drawn-out court battle, you would get take the first legal letter and people might say, OK, well, if we can't, if it's going to become very complicated to defend this and they're not going to accept this and we're going to end up going to court and it's going to cost us hundreds of thousands of pounds in costs alone, never mind what is awarded as a libel damage, then maybe it's just not worth it. And that is wrong and that's how it works. And, you know, the fact that we're the capital of the world for that sort of thing, I don't speak to our credit at all. So, yeah, it happens in England, it happens in Britain far more. Far more than it, because of our libel laws. Our our libel laws are sort of unique. And as I say, it's 140, on average, 140 times more expensive to defend it in the UK than in Europe. And it doesn't particularly exist in the same way in America. And do you have to be a UK resident to be libeled or can foreign nationals sue in the UK? Yes, people do that. The phrase libel tourism. And this is why often you'll read books and they will have sort of sensational details in and the British version will not have it in because if it is published in this country, then you can sue in our courts and that will make a huge amount of money perhaps for the person. So things that you can get away with publishing in America and things you can and in Europe. And then the British version of the book will not have those details in. And so it's quite odd and you'll often be able to look online and see that other people are writing extraordinary stories about the royal family or yeah. whatever. And if you read American publications, you might think you know all sorts of details about things that have happened in the royal family in recent years, but you haven't read them here because they'd be libelous and they'd be sued about. Oh, and it's good. hard to prove often those kind of gossipy backstage stories. And people don't want to necessarily speak on the record, particularly about the royal family. But to some extent, maybe these stories are well sourced. You don't know, but we just don't have it tested because we don't have them published in this country. Oh, Richard Allen, that's a good question, isn't it? You didn't think you are going to get all that. <laughs> Great. Okay, here's a good one for you, Richard. Musicians' income. Bob Bright asks, how many bands and at what level make a decent living? I know Richard's brother is also an author. Do the other members of Suede have other sources of income or does the band provide enough to live on? Is all the cash at the very top end, much like football? Uh, that's a great question, Bob. I, I Obviously, I asked my brother this question. So my brother is in Suede, has been in Suede for or 35 years now something like oh that gosh. longer than that maybe uh, and he said you know my, my brother's very sanguine about the the music business and he's an author as well but he's full time Suede still and so Suede make money 
Matt says 5% of bands are making money, and it's mainly the legacy bands. My brother always said we sold albums in the 90s when that was the way to make money, you sell records, and now we tour, which is the only way to make money now. So obviously at the very top end, your Ed Sheeran's are doing very well. Suede and bands at their level, you know, the Manix, Blur, all those bands, they're making money, those, those, those slightly older bands. But he says, uh, you know, these days for a new band, it's almost impossible to make money you know you're not getting big advances uh, there's no older audience to buy physical product anymore one of the big changes he said in the last few years is touring europe has become much more difficult oh, and no, much more expensive post brexit yeah. so there's no there's no money to be made venues now who would take a cut of merchandising which is the only way that newer bands are making money at all so it's really 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 hard for a young band you could be so the last dinner party who have got the number one album i had the number one album last yeah. week are a very cool new band but Hard for them to make money. So they've sold records, but not the sort of sales of records you'd have made years ago. Well, they, they just have want, to tour. They have to tour. Well, that's the thing. And, you know, Matt says if you can headline festivals, then you're making money. So festivals last, is good money, is it? Festivals is great money oh. because people are paying 100, 200 quid yeah. to go there and there's 40,000 people going. Uh, and so if you're a band like Suede or Blur or, or, or the Mannix who are big around the world, you can do. 30, 40 festivals a year in different countries. You can headline, you make good money, you make all of that legacy money. And so there's a good living to be made. But if you're a new band, you can't do that. You know, you can't just immediately go to headlining festivals. So the last dinner party, for example, probably can now headline one of the, you know, second stages at Glastonbury so they can start making money. How long before they can tour? How long before a band can tour? Yeah, how long before the last dinner party, would you think that they could start selling out places already or just... Oh, definitely. Because of the different way that people listen to music these days, they've got a quite a big following already so they've they've been able to do tours but not the sort of tours that can make you money essentially the only way to make money in music is to to have made it a long time ago because there was money around or to be big enough that you can charge a lot of money it's like so much of culture isn't it the the mid the mid-budget anything has gone yeah so you're either the mega franchise band as it were or you're the kind of low budget, whatever, and you can make it work that way. But the, the mid the mid tier of so many different yeah. parts of entertainment has just been hollowed out. Yeah, and Matt is saying as well, when you've signed a record contract now, publishers quite often demand a cut of publishing and merchandising. They call them 100% deals. So the pop world, and he's right about this, he says the pop world has basically reverted to the 1950s, God. which is like big songwriting factories who are making a lot of money, very pretty people who are making money as well. And that's it. You know, that's where the industry is. You know, actual bands and stuff. I mean, there's there's not a lot of it about. Matt says uh, maybe about 5% of bands you have heard of are making money and all the bands you haven't heard of are not making money. God. But that it's very, very, very difficult these days. You know, you can license your music to films and stuff like that. You can get lucky. But in terms of building a career, and Matt is right again, he's saying, look, either you're a band from the 90s or you have a day job or you have rich parents. And those are the only options left in the music business, which is very depressing. I mean, who knows what comes out at the other end of it? Yeah. You know, and certainly, listen, at the end of the 50s and, you know, that system, you know, we had rock and roll and then punk and all that stuff. So stuff did happen. But it's it's hard to see it happening again when the income stream simply isn't there or the income stream is there. But so much of it is being swept into the, the record companies. It's, a hard, it's hard to have that kind of kind of creative 
backlash in the way that also the way you saw was something like Universal Artists when that that studio is set up right back in the day of the gold, golden age of Hollywood and it's set up as a reaction to everyone feeling that they were owned by the, the big companies but it's really hard to do that against companies that are essentially tech companies now. Exactly that. Suddenly, yeah, you're working for a tech business and yeah. you know they are very keen for you to make less money than you want to make. But if you're worried about my brother, he's doing just fine. He's okay. <laughs> uh, and by the way, he is an author and his wonderful book, The Ghost Theatre, is out in paperback soon. Oh, and I it's have read it and it's great. It's really, really good. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much, Bob. Okay, should we take a break now? Let's take a break. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, welcome back to the Rest is Entertainment Questions Edition. And questions and Answers questions Edition. Questions and Answers. I believe you have a question for me. I do have a question for you. Uh, have you ever been on a jury? <laughs> no. uh, uh, we have another Richard. Richard Myron. Myron? Listen, Myron, I'm guessing. Given that producing movies is so expensive, this is a good question, actually. Given producing movies is so expensive, why are there so many deleted extra scenes during production? You would think the script would be finalised by the time of production. Huh, yeah, like, I mean, like a lot of these things, it's not totally logical, Richard, I would say, but it's so expensive to make films, even if you're making a low budget film by any other standards, you know, you're thinking, oh, I could just be buying a you know, few hundred dialysis machines. It is just extremely expensive. So once you have everything sort of up and running, you should definitely always shoot much more than you need of everything. And this is why we do, you know, people, you shoot what's called coverage and you do the scene from how many different angles and you might shoot 20 takes of the same scene for all the different things. But what you want to give yourself always, because 
as any anyone, not just movies, anyone will tell you, editing is a huge part of all art forms and you need to be able to cut stuff away. And editing is obviously an incredibly creative role in itself. And when you meet a great editor, how they can make something not funny, really, really sing, how they can do little jumpy cuts and suddenly you're, you think you're in the presence of something kind of peppy and smart and cool and it hasn't been at all. You've actually been given something that's almost dead on arrival. That is an art form in itself. Also, it's so strange how many times, you know, you've done something scripted and you've written, I mean, 30 drafts of one episode of television, maybe more, maybe 50 drafts of one episode of television. You see this thing shot and you think, huh, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. <laughs> and the amount of people who have been involved in every little episode of that, but until it's everybody is part of the film. Yeah. And so the act, it's not just the script. The script is one part of it. The actors, it's always extraordinary. When you start talking to actors at the start of a creative process maybe you're making a movie or a tv show or whatever you think i mean i've talked to directors about this who say god it's extraordinary i've been with this film for how long you know trying to get it made the actor already knows so much more about their character than me mm. there are so many moving parts that until it's up and running and you're out there and the cameras are rolling you don't really know and some things will work and some things won't and this is why you might have lots of different alternative lines particularly in comedy that might get shot but even at the end you will have reshoots because you will go back and you think god after all that process yeah. after years of getting ready we still need to go back and reshoot this bit because it honestly doesn't make sense you need that um give within what you shoot and the whole of what and what you record and the sound and everything to be able to tighten it to make the final product you know the more money you would have the more of that you would choose yeah. to do and in, ter in terms of the the cost implications it's built into the budget that you will have to overshoot and presumably as well most of the, the cost of a film are like sunk costs. You, you've got yeah. your crew, you've got your um, location. You know, it's, you're, you're going to have to pay for all of those things anyway. And actually adding an extra day or a couple of extra days, it, it, it doesn't exponentially increase the cost of the movie. You're not starting... You wouldn't, for example, say, oh, we need a new scene yeah. and it's going to be on a helicopter and, actually, and it needs to be in Barbados. That you wouldn't do. But you go, look, we have this set anyway. We have these actors on contract anyway. Can we do an extra day with them and cover something and give the edit something else that they that they can work with? I to this, you're, that's, that I agree, and this is the, the ideal version thereof. I have to say that actually... In keeping with your question, Richard, there are so many movies now, particularly the big franchise ones, that have almost 50% of time, again, built in for reshoots because they, they what happens is that they decide when they're going to release a movie and they release, they bags that weekend months, maybe a, two years in advance, Memorial Day weekend in you know 2025. They have to hit that release date because it's really important. They spent so much money on this film and they start these films and they repeatedly start films with no third act, which is so crazy to me. Marvel repeatedly do not have a third act for a movie. How and does that come about? It's Why is... Because they, actors are available at certain times. Yeah. They've got this date that they have to fix and they go through all... And they it's now become part of their process that they will just do huge numbers of reshoots. Sometimes I've talked to people who their reshoots have been twice as long as the original and, and that is a fiasco and you should never make movies like that. And... It's extraordinarily expensive and it's kind of creatively idiotic because you're constantly working under a really hard time pressure and you're sort of rebuilding the plane mid-flight and it's not an efficient <laughs> way to do it. And it's, and many, but on Marvel, they'll say to you, oh, no, 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 you need to tell us where your third act is at least going to be set. And the directors and the writers will be like, we don't really know. So what they do is they scan 
they fully scan the scenes and then say, right, well, if we have to go back to this, we just do it all on CGI. So everything is now, so much of it CGI. So they'll fully scan sets and whatever and say, if we have to go back to it, we'll do it like that. And then in the end, sometimes the producer will just say, right, you've got the choice of three locations for your final battle because you haven't told us where it's going to be and it's going to be here. Wow. In Which your, is, again, not something, a way to make a piece of art. In your experience, if there is a sum of money on the table to make a film, every single filmmaker will spend every single penny. Oh, yeah, and then yeah. some more. And especially on these kind of bloated franchisings, they go over budget, but they are made in a chaotic way. And sometimes that's part of the process. I mean, Tom Cruise will always say for those Mission Impossibles, they deliberately have a tiny amount of script and much of it's, you know, a lot of things are built around the stunts that he's going to do and they don't really know what, what they're going to do, but that is part of their process. I think ideally... You wouldn't do it like this, but it's become so it's become such a trope of those type of movies that they just kind of completely throw the whole thing out while they're making it and try and rebuild it. And, you know, you can see the creative results. <laughs> oi, oi, oi. Another one I really want to ask you, Richard. Sarah Milton says, Richard, having written several best-selling crime novels and being generally immersed in the crime genre for years, do you think you could commit the perfect murder should the need arrive? <laughs> I like should the need arrive. Yeah, I mean, just... Even. Listen, you never know. Only if called upon yeah. could you do it. Very much giving me the benefit of the doubt there, Sarah, isn't she? Um, <laughs> the honestly, yes. What is my answer? But I obviously because, thought your answer would be no. Really? Oh, really? Yeah. You don't think? I mean, you could commit a perfect murder, surely. I mean, how no long way. It, what, if, what if we had like four days to to plan a murder? Of course we what, could. Well, who's investigating? Is it like Jane Tennyson is investigating? In which case, I don't think I'm going to go up against that. I have I bad mean, news. It's Lorraine Kelly. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> She'll get um, anything. Yeah. Yeah, but what? So, you do think you could? Of course, because you know the, the whole point when you write a crime novel is you have to find a crime, you have to find a, a murder that is difficult to solve. But then there's always a fatal flaw, which means you can solve it. So just do that but without the fatal flaw. And there are sort of brilliant technical consultants most crime writers uh, use. So Val McDermott is one of our finest crime writers. Yeah. Most brilliant Terrific. stuff. And she has a great relationship with this amazing woman called Dame Professor Sue Black. Oh, yes. Uh, and I think she's at Lancaster University, but she's a forensic yeah, science. That, yeah. But yeah, she's absolutely brilliant. Val will take Sue out for dinner uh, and just go, what, what are you working on, Sue? Uh, and Sue will outline to her some new technique that forensic science has got. And then Val will go, but hold on, if I turn that on its head, that means I can get away with murder. And Sue was telling me one time she told Val something and Sue was about to go to a conference. She had this big new um, something about human bones that she discovered and she was right. about to you know she's done a paper on it and she was about to give her first ever speech about it and then she read Val's new book and it was like <laughs> the main bit of the plot and she said like, I haven't even announced this yet Val um, so you know you talk to someone like um, like Sue Black who can give you various ways of getting away with murder which is usually how to hide evidence how to obfuscate evidence things like that but it's working out the ways that you can solve murders which is usually these days cctv phone records um it is you Forensics. know dna exactly yeah. traces and stuff like that but once you take all of those out of the equation i think it's possible to commit the perfect murder don't by the way uh i always think the way to commit a perfect murder really way all you don't have to worry about any of that stuff is to <laughs> Sorry, this is a weird thing to be talking about now. But anyway, I don't listen, want you to stop, Richard. In for a penny, in for a pound. Yeah. Um, if I ever, do, also now I won't ever be able to do this because I'm saying oh, on there. Oh dear, um, taking your guess, best murder idea. Is uh, if you are going to, if you're going to, don't commit a murder. 
I don't need to say that, do I? But well, don't, we, we don't said try it twice, and I think we're covered. Yeah, yeah, we're covered. Legally, we're covered. Yeah. Uh, we're not going to get sued for libel. Um, is to assume you're going to get caught and to commit a murder in such a way that you will get away with it in court. So, you know, for example, if you were to commit a murder and drop a glove that later on the prosecution asks you to try and in court and it's too small for you, suddenly they go, well, I obviously didn't do it. This is your big bit of evidence. I didn't do it. So you would drop a glove that's slightly too small for you you'd, somewhere. You try, try it on in a really yeah. a way that for some reason no one queried and yeah, said, yeah. So, OJ, you're not putting your hand in the glove properly. I wasn't thinking about OJ. All right. I, no, I was. <laughs> Uh, so essentially, you know, just put conflicting evidence. If the glove don't fit, you yeah, must acquit. Also, must get acquit. get Johnny Cochran because really, that was yeah. Uh, so you know, I think that. But yeah, so in the spirit of the question, I think you you spend a lot of time thinking about how people solve murders in these books, yeah. and so and the, the the counter side to that is how someone else tries to get away with murders. So doing I think, it in the context of a sort of Los Angeles race war would be helpful. So try and. If, yes. Think of your cultural context. That's always helpful. Exactly. Cultural context is very, very important. If four police officers have got off or something. Yeah, just, yes. Okay, for a be police beating. I'm, I'm getting too into a specific case, of course, but yeah, but yeah, you'll no. keep it light and, and, and general. Yeah, me. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, it was much easier in the old days, of course, but that goes for crime writing as well. So if, you know, if you're Agatha Christie, firstly, she's a genius, so it's much easier yeah. for her. But secondly, the ways you could be caught were so difficult. Because, you know, yeah. there are no mobile phones and there is no DNA. And so for her for her police officers to catch someone, it's actually very, very difficult. These days, it's, it's really, really, really hard to get away with murder, is the truth. You know, someone... We were watching a true crime thing. This, this is a slight sidebar, but watching lots of true crime things uh, and the cold cases where they catch people yeah. because the DNA from the 70s and 80s was kept. And I can't help thinking... In a world where everything is incompetent and everything goes wrong, the foresight to keep all of that evidence in all of those cases, which now leads to hundreds of people being convicted, that's pretty impressive, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, that's that good. That was the, the one of the most efficient there. things done in the 1970s yeah. across all, all formats. But it is, though. If yeah. you think about yeah. everything we got wrong and every how stupid we were in everything, the fact that even the, the police were going, no, I'll tell you what, we'll just keep, we will keep all of this stuff just in case, you know, science catches up with us and it did and then the law catches up with uh, with murderers um so listen i don't approve of murdering no i'll go on the record as saying that uh i'm never going to commit one i'll go on the record as saying that uh and which is legally binding um but yeah being a crime writer makes you think a lot about how one would get away with murder but i think by and large it's hard to get away with one because to be a murderer in the first place something has to have gone wrong with your logical thinking and so you, you you wouldn't be in the sort of, unless you're an absolute psychopath, you wouldn't be in the place where you were able to think in that way. And if you are a psychopath, then as always their fatal flaw is they tell you that they've murdered somebody because they need to be seen as clever. So listen, it's hard to get away with murder. But uh, logic, you know, as a as a exercise, yes, you could. I think in, in real life... I think it, it might be slightly harder, but if anyone could do it, it would be Professor Dame Sue Black. <laughs> See you next week, everyone. Bye-bye.